Welcome, everyone. I'm here again today with Dr. Dan Rusiniak, who is the medical director of the Indiana Poison Center. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for bringing me back. Yeah, last one was a hit. Everyone liked it. So <laughs> they wanted you back. So today we're going to talk about bites and stings, which is not a huge part of um, boards, but I think in general, pediatricians are a little bit less familiar with this topic. So it is a little bit more tricky for boards. So we're going to start with spider bites. Oh, yes. So what kind of spiders do we care about? And I know like, we're not going to talk about the, the dreaded MRSA spider today, but maybe the other kind of spiders. <laughs> so there's a lot of, I think, misinformation surrounding spiders. Um, and to some extent, they're the most vilified animal in the world. Uh, it, it's pretty common that if somebody wakes up in the morning with an unexplained lesion, that the first culprit they would almost always point to would be a spider. spider. That's right. It's a spider. And it is interesting. It's sort of built within us that we have this inherent arachnophobia. So part of when we talk about spiders and which ones matter is a little bit of just understanding why people are so fearful of spiders uh, and how the vast majority of their fear is unfounded. So you know, they've got this long history. We know they're kind of creepy and ugly. But when we talk about spiders that cause problems, it really comes down to their size. So all spiders are, are venomous. Uh, the difference is, though, that spiders that are large enough that their fangs can penetrate uh, dermis, those folks can get injected, and those uh, people can get injected by those to the point where they can get a problem. And in the U.S., really, there are two big spiders that people tend to focus on, particularly when you're talking about testing in boards. Uh, they are the black widow and then the brown recluse. So we'll touch on both of those just briefly. In terms of the black widow, it's an awesome spider. Beautiful, dark black. It's got that classic kind of red hourglass on the underside of its uh, abdomen. And they really are gorgeous. They are the so, I mean, they look like they're spray-painted black. They're, like, they're, really shiny. Yeah, yeah, incredibly shiny and yeah. really big. They are, they're present in most of the U.S. Most of the places in the U.S. you'll find them. Certainly down here in Indiana and Ohio and stuff, we see them. We see an occasional bite from them here even. They are unique in that they have a neurotoxin. That's one of the things that makes them fairly unique among spiders. They have a toxin called uh, uh, latrotoxin. And what they cause, clinically what they cause, is uncontrolled muscle spasms or cramps. And the description I've always told people is that it's like if you've ever had a calf cramp, and many people have experienced a calf cramp in their life, imagine that continuing again and again and again and again. Sounds and awful. It, it is pretty awful. Uh, and so the toxin is, uh, targets the neuromuscular junction and causes kind of uncontrolled acetylcholine release. And so you just get repetitive muscle contraction and firing. And you can get weakness with it as well. You can also get increased release locally, typically of some of the monoamines like norepinephrine. And that's responsible in part for the, the lesion you see with it, which is a really faint kind of skin lesion. It kind of has the color of like a, a white Zinfandel wine. It's really a subtle blush. And then often you can see a white ring around it. The ring is secondary to vasoconstriction from local norepi release. And if people get enough envenomation, particularly young kids, because the amount of venom per their size is going to be greater, you can actually get hypertension along with all the muscle contractions. 
sort of the classic, I think, bored scenario that sometimes people will get is the child who's got uncontrollable crying and you go to examine them and they've got a hard, rigid abdomen and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is perhaps, you know, appendicitis or some sort of underlying uh, intra-abdominal catastrophe, but you notice that they're writhing all over the bed, right? You know, so clearly not truly peritonitis. And that's sort of, at least when, when I went through training, was the, the classic board type question. And I'm sure it know, happens like really frequently in real life. It, it, I've seen it once. Oh, uh, but yeah, <laughs> so that's sort of the, the classic example. And so if you've got that, you know, the idea where there's maybe a spider or they've got kind of writhing pain, but yet are moving all over the place, and particularly if they're a kid, you want to think about a black widow spider. The treatment from a clinical standpoint is one of two things. Uh, one is you can just treat the symptoms. That's the common approach, which is you give somebody pain medicine, typically an opioid. Sometimes they'll use a muscle relaxant. Robaxin was one that historically was used, but Versed or basically anything that will make somebody comfortable enough uh, for the amount of time it will take. And it's usually six to eight hours or potentially longer with a large envenomation for the symptoms to abate. So you're basically helping them sleep it off to the symptoms go away. It's pretty rare to get enough symptomatology that they get weak and might even need to be intubated. The other approach is to use an antivenin. And uh, there is Black Widow uh, antivenin. It is horse-derived. Um, it's kind of hard to find anymore because it's not you know, a big commercial mm -hmm. success. Um, it's a polyvalent, uh, and it's not a fab fragment, but it's the whole antibody, FC and FAB fragments. And it works. It's very effective at reversing the symptoms because it binds to the toxin from the venom. But as with any foreign protein, giving it to somebody increases the risk that they develop anaphylactoid or anaphylaxis reactions, and certainly down the road increases the risk that they would develop serum sickness. Um, it's kind of classically taught that there are really no well-documented deaths from black widow spider bites, but there have been a couple well-documented deaths from the treatment, meaning okay. that they develop anaphylaxis. So yeah. it's one of those things that you got to kind of use with caution. But yeah. from the board standpoint, there's an antivenom that, that, that you could use. Clinically, probably benzos. I think most of the ones we've seen are adults, and okay. they get localized pain and a little bit of cramping, and they do fine with, you know, a little opioid or a little non-steroidal, maybe a little benzo. Um, I've only seen one teen uh, when I spent a month in Colorado who had the writhing and abdomen who got mm -hmm. antivenom and, and did very well. It can be fairly painful, and if you give people the choice of something that rarely would kill them, which is the treatment, it's pretty rare to have kill somebody but something could cause anaphylaxis or the pain or of, the pain they, they often, charlie horse in the whole body yeah they often choose uh they often go ahead and choose that they take the antivenom now the other spider that uh people worry about and certainly gets a lot of uh, attention in in literature is the brown recluse the brown recluse is located mostly to the south uh u.s southwestern but also midwest for a bit missouri is a Illinois have a lot. We have some here in Indiana, but they go all the way down to Texas and, and southeastern U.S. They are another kind of large brown spider. They have a unique characteristic in that on the top uh, of their um, cephalothorax, they have what looks like a fiddle uh, shape or a violin shape. Sometimes they're called fiddleback spiders. Oh. They're kind of named appropriately in that they tend to be fairly reclusive. They're not a very aggressive spider. They tend to be in corners. You might find them in basements. People tend to get in trouble with them and with black widows both. You tend to get in trouble when you put on a piece of clothes, a shoe or something that the spider is living in, or you roll over on it. Neither of these spider species choose humans. 
as their primary means of food. In fact, I always tell people, have you ever tried to kill a spider? And they say, yeah, I remember. What happens? The spider runs run away, away, right? Yeah. So they don't turn around and, you know, it's not Australia with the funnelback spider. They don't turn around and fight. So we are not their source of prey. So the times that people get envenomated are traditionally when they're squishing the spider accidentally or unbeknownst to them. And as a last act of defense, the spider uh, will envenomate. So it's pretty uncommon to get bit by either. Most of the ones I've seen are been rolled over on in bed or a shoe. Now, the brown recluse is classically attributed, or the brown recluse bite has been classically attributed to the kind of tissue destruction, flesh eating, and you can find lots of fantastic pictures on the internet and even in textbooks of brown recluse bites. The interesting thing, though, is that if you look at those cases and you dive into it a little bit deeper and you say, did they identify the spider? The answer is almost always no, no they didn't. What happened is somebody got a horrible necrotic lesion and said, I think it was a spider. When you look at cases in where the spider was actually identified, that somebody rolled over on it, went back and we identified it, and we said, that indeed is a brown recluse. And we've had a couple here. Those lesions tend to do much better. Um, they do and can cause a necrotic lesion in adults. It has this classic kind of central purple blistering. You can get necrotic, but most of them heal pretty well just with local wound care. In children, there is reasonable evidence to suggest that small children who get envenomated by a brown recluse, that in addition to just a local necrotic wound, can develop some systemic symptoms. There's a, a venom or a toxin in the venom called sphingomyelinase D, and that in large enough concentrations, if it gets into the systemic circulation, can cause hemolysis. And so there have been cases of children getting hemolysis or widespread hemolysis from a brown recluse bite. Um, but those are probably from your test standpoint, the, the two that you want to know about from a clinical standpoint, you, know, you probably don't really need to worry that much about either. If you think you got a black widow, you know, treat their pain. And if you think you got a brown recluse, just treat wound it like care. you would a wound. Yeah. A burn. Don't need to do debridement. You don't need to do skin grafting and things like that. Uh, you generally could just do a good local wound care. There are other spiders that can cause lesions, and really just think about any big giant spider you've seen. Uh, if it bites you, it could potentially cause a lesion. So orb weaver spiders, hobo spiders, which are up in the northwest mm -hmm. of the Mind U.S., that's right. You know, a large enough wolf spider could do it. But again, since we are not these arthropods' main source of food, uh, the likelihood of those interactions occurring is fairly low. All right, well, what about... Um, snakes. I, you know, I just actually went to the zoo like two days ago. Saw yeah. some cool snakes over at the Indianapolis Zoo. That's some crotalids. Right. Yeah, in Indiana, yeah. in Indiana, the best place to see venomous snakes is the zoo. Is the zoo? Right? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's not like we're a hot, a hot zone. For, we're not for snakes. We're, we're not a hot zone. Um, certainly around the country, though, there are a lot of venomous snakes. And those of your listeners who reside in the Arizonas. Not the Arizonas, the Arizona. 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 Yeah. yeah, Arizona or in Texas or any of those southern areas certainly will become uh, much more uh, knowledgeable on crotalid bites than folks of us who live in more northern climates. In the U.S., probably the two most problematic snakes in terms of true, like, medical complications are the eastern and western diamondback and again arizona seems to be the the place that sees the most number of envenomations and they're really problematic because they've got a tremendous amount of tissue necrosis 
components within their venom. Uh, they release uh, TNF-alpha, which causes a lot of local uh, skin and, and tissue destruction. And because they're such big snakes, and they're huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you they are. Saw, they're t- honestly, I was terrified. And uh, I was like, had glass between me. Yeah, they're enormous. They can inject an enormous amount of venom. And if enough is injected and absorbed through the lymphatic system into the systemic circulation, it will also start to digest lots of proteins uh, in your uh, coagulation system. So really the issue is it tends to cause a lot of thrombin release. That tends to consume a lot of your coag proteins, and then you develop this consumption coagulopathy. So your fibrinogen levels go down to zero, uh, your INR goes way up, your PTT goes up, and even with some of the protolids, you can get thrombocytopenia. So essentially you get two big problems from most of the rattlesnakes in that you get a lot of tissue destruction and you can get, you know, you can lose digits and you can get large wounds. But in addition, you can develop a coagulopathy. And far and above, those are the two biggest concerns from from a snake bite. Now, in terms of absolute numbers, the largest number of snake bites actually are from copperheads. And it just has to do with the fact that copperheads are larger terms in population. They tend to reside closer to where humans are, um, and they're in most most of the states. And so, like, North Carolina is the hotbed for, for copperhead bites. They tend to lead the country, I think, uh, in the number of venomations. And even here in Indiana, we see several copperhead bites a year. And it, they can rarely cause problems. You can rarely get a little tissue to, uh, destruction and really rarely get coagulopathy like with the Eastern and Western Diamondback. But really, for, I think... The folks who listen to your podcast view them as a really big bee. Um, they cause a lot of swelling and Much a lot scarier. of local pain. They're scarier than a bee, but <laughs> but they are not as problematic as as the um, rattlesnakes. Yes, somebody who gets bit by ought to go to a healthcare facility, ought to be checked to make sure they don't have any serious wound uh, issues or that they don't develop coagulopathy. But for the most part, most of them can be can be just treated with supportive care. We'll talk about antivenom in a minute. Uh, a couple other snakes worth mentioning in the U.S. in Texas and Mississippi and sort of uh, some of those areas in the southeastern U.S., there is the coral snake. Uh, the coral oh. snake is not a crotalid. It actually is an elapidae, and it's the only one in the U.S., and it has a neurotoxin, so it can cause paralysis. Oh. Um, basically works like a uh, neuromuscular blocker. Like a rockyronium or something. It's like it's like a rockyronium snake. That's, That's right. I like it. It's like a snake that bites you and injects you with rockyronium. Um, the problem, of course, is that once that venom is bound, uh, then it's it's hard to kind of reverse it. it. That's right. It's hard to reverse it. So you tend to get the paralysis that you get. Now the nice thing about coral snakes is they're really docile. They're not very aggressive. They don't have those big fangs that they inject. Um, and so most of the people who get bit by coral snakes are people who probably deserve to get yeah. bit by the coral snake like check this out you know <laughs> like the uh what is it the t's of, of yeah yeah the seven t's which are um tattoos mm-hmm, trailer mm-hmm, testicles mm-hmm, tequila tequila yeah tequila I yeah, that t-shirt t-shirt um, yeah i mean the, <laughs> the the most common thing heard before a snake bite occurs is hold my beer yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes. so, so, I mean, the, the, the number of coral snake envenomations are fairly low. I mean, kids could certainly do it because kids are curious and yeah. would see that and might go grab it. Oh, look how um, pretty. That's right. Um, 
And for the mnemonic for the listeners is, you know, the, the coral snake is red on uh, uh, yellow. You're a dead fellow. Yeah. And, and red then, on black, you're okay, Jack. Yeah, or venom black, yeah. So the, those are the, the, the kind of class mnemonic. It is a small, beautiful snake. So that has a, a unique neurotoxin. And then there's a snake in... California and Arizona called the Mojave rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. It's a rattlesnake, but it also has a neurotoxin can cause paralysis. So really the, the, the three big things that you're going to worry about are, again, tissue and skin necrosis. Number two is coagulopathy. Number three is paralysis. So in terms of treatment, for the copperheads and, and the ones that mostly just cause swelling, we tend to focus mostly on supportive care. In the U.S., we do not use constriction bands. And that's probably an important thing to point out. In Asia, you might where cobras uh, and crates and some of these really potent paralytic snakes reside and where it may take an hour or longer to get to a healthcare facility, facility for antivenom. So in that setting, you're, you're decreasing blood flow from that bit and extremity. So you're increasing the risk that there's some you know, tissue destruction and stuff, but you're keeping the person alive long enough to get them to a hospital. In the U.S., we, we don't use those, and that's because most of the snakes in the U.S. cause tissue destruction. And by decreasing the blood flow to an area that already has venom destroying and chewing up their muscle is a great way to make it worse. Yeah. So we do not use tourniquets and constriction bands. We, we tend to immobilize the extremity if they're outside the hospital. We tend to raise it above their heart if possible to sort of distribute the venom quickly because it causes more problems in one local area than it does distributed. And then once they're in the hospital, we, we do supportive care, follow the amount of uh, progressive swelling. So for those that just cause swelling, you mostly can just watch them. And, and once the swelling stops, treat them with some pain medicine and let them go home. If they're developing significant tissue necrosis, worried about um, that this might progress and result in loss of limb uh, or a digit, um, or if they develop significant coagulopathy, or if they just have really progressive amount of swelling that continues to extend up the extremity, then we'll consider using antivenom. And in the U.S., for most of the crotalids that you're going to run into, and that is the rattlesnakes, uh, there is crofab, which is a commercially available fab fragment, and it is fairly effective, particularly against the eastern and western diamondback, against the Mojave rattlesnake. There is some data to suggest, and it's, I won't say controversial, but it's not really all that definitive yet, that it might help a little bit in copperheads. And so I think some people like to give copperhead bites crofab. Uh, the uh, benefit from it is probably not as impressive, and these people do well anyways. Um, but crofab is very effective uh, as an antivenom. It is a fab fragment, which means it has less uh, allergen-provoking, uh, so you get less anaphylactoid reactions, uh, less serum sickness. You still occasionally can happen. The biggest issue with it is Cost. Yeah, yeah, it's expensive. Like That's yeah. right. It's expensive. And it's got its fancy name. It's probably expensive. It is, yeah. And it's rare. If you think about it, if yeah. you know, there's not a lot of times you're given antivenom, then for a company to produce it, they're going to charge a whole lot of uh-huh. money to try to recoup their costs. So it's really expensive, which is another reason we don't give it all that, that readily. But it is pretty effective. For the coral snake, they also have an antivenom that's specific to coral snake. Uh, Usually you're going to have to call your local poison center if you're in that part of the country, and they can direct you to a place that has it. But again, less likely to be envenomated by a coral snake. Those are probably the biggest snake uh, issues that you're going to run into. Okay. I'm sure you've seen a lot of these here in Indiana, but scorpion stings, which is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, you're, you're our local expert now, as you gave this just... 
Very interesting. It was. It was a great talk you gave on, on Scorpio. Well, thank you. I, li- I do like Scorpio. Very yeah, I think it was a standing ovation. Oh, I don't think so. People were. We were all sitting actually the whole a, time. There was a lot of tears <laughs> because it was so moving. Yeah, we we don't we don't see any Scorpio. We've had one Scorpion bite that was a traveler, meaning that it was you know mm-hmm. hijacked or, or stowawayed on some bananas that people were unloading oh. in uh, one of the companies here in Indiana got bit. The the biggest exposure we had to them is we owned a bunch of them for a while. I heard, yeah, they had babies. They did have babies. They were fascinating. But again, people who, particularly in Arizona and along the southern U.S.-Mexico border, this is a real issue. And there's, you know, upwards of 5,000 or more envenomations every year uh, with scorpions. In the U.S., the big one is the bark scorpion. I will not use its Latin name, although you know I know, I know. It's I can't say it. Centro- it's really hard. Centroides. Centroides. Something. Or something. Or something. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. remember it either. Um, but it's the bark scorpions, small, which means that they're easy to overlook. And they're fascinating, and as I learned from you, is that they go back to like they're one of the oldest, the oldest living creatures. things in the U.S. Yeah, it's like, crazy. I know, U.S. in the world. Yeah. Like they're one of the oldest living things that go back to like predate the mm-hmm. dinosaurs and stuff. Which is, it is crazy. So. They are problematic in the sense that they're small. They go indoors, typically, uh, where people live, because that's where bugs often are. And if you are not careful and you get near them, they will do a defensive um, sting. And the venom in the bark scorpion is pretty interesting in that it's a neurotoxin. We like to think of it as sort of as a sodium channel opener. It's another way of saying it causes, and it really targets the axons of your nerve fibers. It causes them to continue to fire repetitively. And particularly since a lot of those are motor or attached to, you know, muscles, you get a lot of uncontrolled muscle movements. The ones that are probably the most characteristic for this and the ones that your listeners should Google to see the video of, because once you see it, you, you won't miss it is uh, opsoclonus cool. it is it's this uncontrolled eye movements that um kids have you ask them to look up and the eyes just sort of look like they're moving independent of one another and like circles they are yeah yeah. Really. yeah it's like it's like watching a teenager dance anyways they um are fascinating and in addition you can get just profound muscle twitching and uncontrolled muscle movements they can get salivation you can even get strider and kind of upper airway uh, problems and those are the worst. Those are the absolute worst things that you tend to see. And those are what we would kind of call grade four. And, and those who get involved in this because of where they live are going to understand the grading system very well. It's one, two, three, four. And it becomes important because grade threes and fours really require potentially antivenom. So grade fours is you get motor findings and you get this opsoclonus or these cranial nerve findings. Then grade three is it's mostly just uncontrolled motor movements. And then grade two and one are it hurts, you know. <laughs> so the, the good thing is that the vast majority of people who get envenomated by a scorpion have localized pain. You know, this is the defense mechanism for it against bigger uh, things like us and also a way that it kills uh, insects that it, it, it eats. But most people, local pain, a little swelling, a little itching. Occasionally, you can get some uncontrolled localized muscle twitching and contractions. It's predominantly kids who tend to get these grade 3s and grade 4s where they get these widespread uncontrolled movements, drooling, and maybe even become airway issues. And again, it's just based on their size. They will, uh, per their size, get a bigger dose of uh, venom when they're envenomated. 
The treatment has historically been, again, one of two things. One is symptom control. So in the kids with uncontrolled movements, you'd use benzodiazepines, Versed, something along those lines to sedate them to decrease some of the motor activity, decrease the risk of them developing rhabdo from it. If they have hyper kind of secretions, you know, you'd use atropine or glycopyrrolate or something to dry them up. And if airway was an issue, you'd clearly intubate them. And that was uncommon, uh, but still was what you, you worried the most about. Um, the other option is antivenom. And, and there's a commercially available antivenom called Antiscorp. It's produced out of Mexico, and it is pretty effective against the neurotoxin in the bark scorpion. Um, typically within an hour or two, almost everybody's symptoms have resolved. And so it's great when you get these really severe cases in the emergency department because you could potentially treat them and send them home because they don't have recurrent symptoms once they've gotten the antivenom. It is a fairly low risk of acute anaphylaxis and of developing serum sickness because uh, it's also a fab fragment. Um, also expensive, like the crow crazy crow. expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's like all you know. Like I think Martin Shkreli has taken over all these companies. <laughs> They're all like hundred thousand dollar bills, but it is uh, fairly effective. And I think most clinicians would prefer to use that in these severe cases. The good thing is they're pretty rare. Most of the people who are stung by a scorpion never have to go to the hospital at all. The vast majority of them, poison. You know, you call the poison center and we manage them at home with ice. You know, Benadryl for itching. The same kind of stuff you get from any kind of insect bite. It's really only if they start getting these wild widespread systemic stuff. But really cool to see it. I highly recommend listeners just Google Bark Scorpion and you could put Arizona uh, and usually you can find the video. There's a great video from a little documentary, Leslie Boyer, who is uh, the medical director at the Arizona Poison Center in Tucson, put together and is was led the U.S. side of the clinical trials. But there's great videos of the kids and the obstacles. Again, worth finding, cool. particularly if you're going to go practice in Arizona and are not from Arizona because... You don't, you don't learn it. Yeah, you don't want to go running the first day at work to somebody like, what the hell is kids possessed? And somebody, well, it's just a, it's just it's just a scorpion bike. <laughs> so. The uh, other thing I think that, you know, I've seen just countless cases here in Indiana <laughs> is uh, jellyfish. Oh, yeah, things. yeah. They're another zoo. You can see yeah. them at the Oh, zoo yeah. Too. No, I saw them. They have them at the aquarium up in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So jellyfish are... You know, the reason that all of us need to know how to manage jellyfish is that people tend to like to go to the ocean yeah. as a place for a vacation. And so you'll either going to become envenomated, have a child Yourself. that you're with yeah. become envenomated, or see somebody who's brought to your office when they've returned from from their vacation. Now, in jellyfish are, are everywhere. They're huge species uh, in in terms of the number of different types of jellyfish out there. In the U.S., probably the most problematic one, and if I had to, to memorize one, it would be the Portuguese man-of-war. The nice thing is they're big, and you can, you can recognize them. They're those big purple ones with the big bubble floating on top. And the reason they're problematic is they've got a really long, really, really long tentacles. And each one of those tentacles will have thousands upon thousands of nematocysts on it. And these are the the little spring mechanism by which they inject venom. It's a really evil system. Jellyfish kind of jettison their brain in their development, which is bizarre. You know, they have a nervous system, they kind of get rid of it, and they just become these floating automatons. Um, and so these really long tentacles have thousands and thousands of nematocysts, and it's really easy to hit, you know, one. To hit one. Yeah, And they're, they're all contact-loaded, and they have a little spring that fires and injects venom. And every one of those nematocysts, all thousands of them, can when they right. hit you, will fire. Yeah. And they have a lot of 
toxins as all of these things do and the big things that they'll do is they cause a lot of local release of things like histamine and serotonin and these kind of vasoactive compounds so you get big wheels on your skin you get swelling you get itching and more importantly you get a lot of pain if you were small enough and you got uh, enough of it wrapped around you there are cases i think of people getting cardiac toxicity from um portuguese man of war envenomations but it's not common Mostly what you get are these whip-like marks, and you can see where every tentacle brushed your skin, it'll literally look like somebody whipped you, and you get these swollen linear marks. So it'd be a great one on boards for a picture. picture That's right. Yeah. You got a picture, and somebody who was swimming, and it's in the ocean, it's not going to be in a quarry. They're swimming, and you see these linear kind of whip-like marks across their skin. That's going to almost always be a jellyfish. Now, if they're clever, and they will be, they won't have you jellyfish won't be an answer no. it'll be a treatment What's like, a treat? what do you yeah. want to treat them with yeah. and so so i'll ask you is how do you treat a jellyfish well i think it's vinegar although i i've heard everyone says you know pee on it but i feel like vinegar is like you know it smells horrible yeah. it's probably so <laughs> it is it's vinegar hot water maybe too but vinegar is the the treatment of choice in fact if you go to places like australia where where jellyfish are really much more of a problem you'll see they have giant jugs of white vinegar on oh. the beach in emergency stations they got these white Kind of like foamed yeah, with poles, really? yeah, and they're there for the public to quickly grab a giant jar emergency of white vinegar. vinegar. That is, it's emergency <laughs> vinegar, and it's also useful, you know, if if you want to make a salad right, right there on yeah, the beach, you like can little... do either. And the, the vinegar is useful because as acetic acid, the pH is such that it de, it it impairs the the release mechanism of the met, prevents them from firing. That's heat's been thought to maybe be able to do that too if water is hot enough, hot enough where not enough to burn, but hot enough to be kind of uncomfortable. And again, that's really the goal here is to prevent any tentacle that's stuck on you, any of those pneumatocysts from further firing because there's going to be ones that haven't touched you yet and haven't fired yet. So yeah, the, the acute treatment is pour vinegar all over it or hot water. Do not pee on it. Um, I mean, I, I guarantee you there's a YouTube video oh, of somebody sure, doing yeah. it, but pee is not going to help you. It's just going to have insult to injury now you've got a wound and and, and you've been peed and on. you've been peed on that's a bad day, it's a bad day. it's a bad day and then the, the next thing is then you want to get get the tentacles off so you got to remove them sometimes people will recommend as you remove the tentacles a lot of nematocysts will stay is trying to get the nematocysts off and i've heard lots of different things from credit cards to shaving cream and a razor as i've always heard is a really effective way to do it to be honest with the majority of people who are practicing medicine by the time that this person gets to you, it's probably not that relevant. Unless you're somebody who practices medicine at the beach. or That's my life goal. It is. Well, then you, you should probably... Open up want, a little you hut. Should, you should probably want to know that. That's yeah. right. So, um, yeah, and then the biggest issue is then they, they come back, you know, and it's just, again, it's wound care. Most of these don't get infected, which is mm -hmm. good. Um, you know, Benadryl, nonsteroidals for pain and treatment. There are some bad jellyfish, but... They all reside in Australia where all venomous things end up. I know. I don't know how that happens. I don't either. It's, it is, everything bad is there. Not everything, but a lot of a lot of really <laughs> venomous things. And they, they don't care. The they Australians, care. I spent three months there, they just have such an attitude of like, well, you got to die somehow. <laughs> might I mean, as well be scuba diving. Yeah, might as well be. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think when you live surrounded by all these venomous animals, you just take a laissez-faire approach. But the, the most poisonous one and thought to be the most poisonous marine animal is the box jellyfish mm -hmm. or... I think it's Flexeri chironi uh, or something. I can't what remember. I yeah. Anyways, uh, it has a pretty potent cardiac and, and neurotoxin. So people will drown basically okay. after they get, get bit by them. And then there's your kanji, which are these oh, teeny, yeah. teeny, I a whole teeny little. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get in the old it's Flexor Eye Barnes Eye, I think, is that <sighs> named after Dr. Barnes, who was Found telling it. everybody that there's these teeny microscopic jellyfish causing horrible pain and stuff, and everyone's like, you're crazy. You're crazy. What, what are you smoking? And so then he proved it by envenomating himself and his one or two sons. I can't oh, remember. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah. Yeah, classic classic scientist. That's right. Test yeah. yourself first. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that, that's jellyfish. Um, well. Probably ought to talk about. You want to do like one that we actually see? Yeah, one you see bees. <laughs> yeah, which I learned today. Was, and what was it? Hymopt. Hymopt. I can't say it. Hymenoptera. 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 That's right. So Hymenoptera. Yeah. So there are, and you're right. Those are the the most common things you run into. Hymenoptera really is three different families, and that's bees, wasps, hornets, yellow jackets, and, and ants, which is bees, and then wasps, hornets, yellow jackets, and then ants. I, I, I sort see, of combine them. Yeah. yeah. So these are things you see a lot. I mean. I think everyone's been stung by a bee. You've yeah, been right. Yeah, bee yeah, or, I've been yeah, stung. Multiple times. Yeah. And everyone's got a kid who's been stung by a bee or a wasp or a hornet. And if you live in Texas in certain areas of the U.S., almost everyone's had a run-in with fire ants, uh, which is the other one that falls under Hymenoptera. The good thing is because I think we've all experienced it. We all recognize that for the most part, um, yeah, most, most part, you're going to do fine. You know, bees have a, a toxin in them that sometimes you see on boards called melatonin. I doubt it's on your boards, more on our boards. They're really good at releasing histamine and causing mast cell degranulation. So you just get localized swelling, redness. And the swelling can be really impressive. I think people sometimes don't recognize this. This is probably not boardable question-wise, but it's important from practice. Is a lot of times you'll see somebody get stung on the face. You know, they'll get stung on their forehead. And they will come in and their whole eye will be shut, you know, and their whole face will be swollen. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh. It's precipitous. Yeah, 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 because it occurred the day before. It's not. Um, Almost always with bees and wasps, the first 48 hours of stuff is all local toxin, and they don't need antibiotics. If they got bit yesterday, have red, swelling, oozing, it's not infected, right? Mm -hmm. If it's three days later and it was itchy and now it's starting to hurt and you've got, you know, crusting (laughs) yellow, you know, you guys know this really well, then it's probably, you know, staph or strep from somebody just scratching and, and digging at it. But almost always acutely, it's not. But the swelling can be really impressive uh, with hymenoptera uh, envenomations or stings. The other thing I think people probably don't recognize is we all hear about these kind of killer bees, uh-huh. uh, the Africanized yeah. honeybees, and they, they swarm and stuff. Um, they don't really have a unique toxin. It's similar to regular bees. The difference is that they swarm. They have swarming activity, and they're provoked very easily so that they're like it's, moody teenagers. They, oh yeah, they are, yeah, and it's like but it's like hundreds of yeah, yeah it's like, it's like hundreds, hundreds of moody, moody teenagers. It's like yeah, waiting in line for the Taylor Swift concert and finding exactly. out that the tickets yeah. are sold uh-huh. out. Right? Yeah, it's the right. same thing. It's not gonna go well. So um, it's not going to go well. So they cause their biggest problem not based on an individual bee, but the number of envenomations. So they've counted hundreds and two, three, four hundred wow. of stings at certain individuals individuals have undergone when they've been swarmed by them. So the problem with them is that if you get stung enough, you'll get enough release of histamine that you'll basically go into shock and you, and you can die from widespread shock, or wheezing, pulmonary edema, the whole thing. So that's really the big issue with them. They're similar to any honeybee. They're just, you get a lot more, a lot more aggressive. Same with wasps and hornets. They all are mostly localized stuff. The big thing, obviously, that we all worry about is an allergic reaction. Um, again, it's going to be an IgE-mediated thing, which means they typically have had some previous exposure. They developed kind of IgE antibodies, and then they have this kind of 
you know, overreaction uh, to the bee sting. And, and those are folks who have developed wheezing or hives or really any systemic signs and symptoms that anyone's developed after bee sting, not just local not redness, just local. but anything systemic. Those people really ought to carry with them EpiPen uh, auto injector and, and ought to have one available and ought to consider themselves uh, allergic. Uh, the last one to talk about is ants. Really, it's the fire ants. Um, I think people in Texas deal with this in southeast U.S. They're a kind of unique ant. The name ant itself had to do with the fact that it's, some of them can secrete formic acid as one of their toxins, but they've got other toxins in them. They cause It feels like somebody just injected you with pure fire. So oh, it hurts, really painful, really itchy. There's some great YouTube videos of some <laughs> crazy ants in like Africa that oh. have like the most painful sting known to man and some guy who's like got his arm jammed in there is some rite of passage he's just in terrible pain for like 24 hours but these are really painful you know unless you have an immobile person like a newborn or somebody that got overwhelmed by them that couldn't escape you know people are going to run away pretty quickly you're going to brush them off you're just going to be dealing with local wound localized pain local wound care it's really only going to be a problem if you had somebody who like a newborn who you know and you know it's you went yeah us. yeah and then all the ants crawled i mean those folks could potentially develop enough lesions that they could die and you know again from histamine and other things that are released but it's mostly local wound care. It's probably worth looking uh, for folks who listen to a Google image of a fire ant because you'll see these little pustules that develop. And again, it's one of those things that would be really good to have on a test. Somebody playing outside runs in screaming and they've got these blisters all over their foot, these teeny little pustules on their feet. And that's visual stimulus. That could be a good visual stimulus. That's what stimulus. they call it. Yeah, yeah. and it'd be, it'd be a good fire ant question. Well, very cool. Thanks so much. I think we yeah. hit everything. Well, we didn't talk about the most common bites. Human? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I didn't feel like that you would, I would make you talk about human bites, but. Well, with little kids. Basically, you give augmented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. It's yeah, I think that's probably Yeah, good. or if yeah. your kid bites, you can just put a little capsaicin cream on it. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. My kid them. bites me all the time. They do. Teething. I don't understand. Yeah, they do. You hold them, you. Bite they your bite arm. your arm, I know, and they oh, hurt. They hurt. Now, don't bite them back. I know, I've heard that. There's Someone a, told me to. I was like, I don't no, think I'm do no, that. No, 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 don't bite I them back. I can't do that. That's... I think that makes it worse. I, I, think that, <laughs> I think when you bring your kid into the pediatrician and he's got a human bite mark on they their call, arm. They, they call DCS. Yeah, I think yeah. DCS gets called in. I don't think the defense is they bit me first. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that works. I don't think it's going to go well. Well, thanks well, for inviting thanks me. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me back.